I invite you to turn today to John chapter 4. We're going back to our series of the, uh, our study of John. It's interesting, last week I was in Reno, and they are almost done with the book of John. They actually today are preaching the last message in that church, Living Hope Church in Reno, on the book of the Gospel of John. And it's taken them a little over a year to go through it. So now you know, okay? Um, it takes some time to go through things like this. So um, as they are finishing, we're, we're just kind of getting into about, uh, about 20% of the way here through uh, the same book. And we've, of course, been looking at this account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman that he met at the well while he was on his way to the area of Galilee. And last time um, that, that I was here a couple weeks ago, uh, we looked at... Um, the end of, of that whole encounter of living water and how Jesus called this woman to himself to find uh, the, the, what she needed to meet her spiritual needs. And so uh, we're going to pick up now right at the end of that as Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah to this woman. We see then what happens uh, right after that. In verse 27 of John chapter 4, and at this point his disciples came. And they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say, There are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap that, that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that he is indeed, that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. We're going to look at that today with this in mind, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that there is life in him, the Son of God. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. We thank you for the concern of Jesus Christ with this mission to seek and to save the lost. And as we sung about today, Lord, as we look at this passage today, would you challenge us with that same um, passion and that same uh, ch- uh, um, call in our own hearts and lives that we as Christians are called to go out to tell others of what you have done, to show them their need of salvation, to show them the hope of the gospel. Lord, I pray for one who may be here today who continues to wrestle with what does it mean to, what does the gospel mean? What does it mean to have salvation? What does it mean to be a child of God? Lord, would you continue to open their eyes and to reveal to them their sin and the Savior who died to take it away? 
Help them to find true life in Jesus Christ. We'll give you all the honor and the glory and the praise for what you accomplished here today. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, there are certain things in life uh, that you can't wait to share with other people. Perhaps you can recall certain moments in your life that are like that. Now, for me, uh, the first, probably one of the first ones that I think of in the last several years of my life has is, is been about 13 years ago, 12 or 13 years ago, when my wife and I got engaged. You know, that was something we couldn't wait to tell other people. Or, of course, whenever we've been expecting a, a child, that's something we wanted to share with other people. Or even... Uh, just a couple years ago, when our family was preparing to move to Michigan, we were very excited about what God was doing in our hearts and our lives and, and bringing us to this place. And we love, we still love Michigan, by the way, okay? Um, we love all the snow and everything that comes with it. So um, we, we, we get very excited about things, and we share those things with other people because these, these are such life-changing, exciting moments, and we want others to, to share in that moment with us. When Samaria... 2,000 years ago, here is a woman who had such an experience in her life. She went to the well in that city on that day to carry out a normal, everyday occurrence. She needed water. And the well in Sychar was the place she needed to go to, to retrieve that water. But what she didn't expect that day was that she would find the Messiah sitting at that well. Jesus, as only he can, shone the light of himself on her dark and lonely heart. Her sin kept her from having peace in her soul. Her sin kept her from spiritual wholeness and instead left her always in want. She was in want of more, of something that could take away her guilt. But she never found it until that day when everything changed. That day at the well, this woman met Jesus, the giver of all life, the redeemer of men, and the hope of eternal salvation. Jesus brought her face to face with her eternal reality and showed her the hope that was found only in himself. And, and like Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, she heard the profound truth of mankind's only hope explained to her in a way that she could grasp. But unlike Nicodemus, this woman responded immediately to what Jesus said. And in these next 16 verses that I just read for you and we're going to look at today, we see the change that is wrought in her life and the news that she wishes to share with others. This is the greatest thing she's ever experienced. And we see how her testimony draws others to the Savior and the challenge her testimony is to all who would be obedient disciples of Jesus. And what we see in this passage is this, the life-changing power of the gospel transforms us and compels us to share this life-altering news with others. The gospel changes lives. We didn't get enough amens. The gospel changes lives. You believe that? And if it changes lives, and if the gospel has changed your life, then it does more than just change your life, it compels you to do something with that life. It compels you to live for the sake of God through the power of Jesus Christ. It compels you to live out new life. It compels you to to bring honor and glory to God. And it compels you to take the message of the gospel that you have heard and that you have experienced and do something with it. But can we just say from the outset that as a whole, Okay, as a whole, 
Christianity and churches really struggle with this, right? Have you as a Christian ever struggled to share the gospel with other people? Okay? We, we, we do. We struggle with that. And we're really, really good at coming up with excuses, right, of why we can't share the gospel. But what Jesus shows his disciples here today is that, that the calling of those who would be disciples, who would be followers of him, is to share that news with the people, to be involved in the sowing and in the reaping of the message of the gospel. And he does so by, by what he does here in spending time in this area of Samaria, which a few weeks ago I addressed with you about why that was controversial in the, in the culture in which they lived. So let's look here today and see this, the, what Jesus shares with his disciples and how that challenges us today if we are going to be um, uh, those who, who obediently carry out the work of the gospel. We see, first of all, in this passage in verses 27 through 30, the Savior's work. And it begins with some surprising events. In verse 27, at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? Jesus has just revealed himself as the Messiah to this woman of Samaria. As you looked last time, last time we saw that, that he said, I am he, I, I, am speak, I who speak to you am he, and I share with you that, that he really isn't in the original text. It's, it's there to help us understand what Jesus is saying is, I am. I am the Messiah. I am the self-existent God. And as this conversation reach, reaches this critical point of revelation, we see that then the disciples return from their mission. And I want you to see here that this is an excellent example of God's providence and God's sovereignty over all things in, in, in this world, in this universe. Because the disciples had left some time ago to go into town and find food, but they did not return until just now. And understand that if they had returned too early, they would have interrupted this crucial conversation, right? If they returned too late, they would have missed out on seeing the woman depart and the subsequent lessons that Jesus was going to teach them. See, here is God who operates outside of time, orchestrating all things in his perfect will and plan. And in that providence, God allows us to make decisions of our own free will, and then they are woven into a beautiful tapestry of his sovereign will and plans. And we see that here in the lives of these disciples. Here, they return in time to see that Jesus has been indeed speaking with a Samaritan woman. And this observation is one that surprised and amazed them. We see here that they they marveled at what they saw. That Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, would speak with a woman. And furthermore, a Samaritan woman was not just out of the ordinary for that day. It was strictly opposed We have to understand that that from the ancient rabbinical rules that a lot of these guys would follow, a common rabbinical rule was to avoid speaking to women in public by men. And in doing so, these men were said to, at their best, be wasting their time, or at worst, diverting their attention from studying the Torah, that is the law of God, which could lead them to Gehenna, or eternal damnation. Those are some pretty strong words over why these guys didn't speak to women. And I'm just telling you, I'm not telling you it's right, that's just the social construct of what was going on. But see, the, the disciples had observed that Jesus' modus operandi was totally different than those of the common rabbis of his day. 
They noticed that he was not bound by Jewish traditions or expectations or prejudices. The message Jesus proclaimed publicly and shared privately was the message of himself, the gospel. And this is, the, this is a fact that the gospel is greater than any human construct of societal norms. The gospel transcends all barriers. Whatever barrier you and I as a human being can try to construct, whether it be gender, race, financial status, political stances, difference in personal struggles, or anything else that you can think of, all of them are subservient to the power of the gospel. And only the gospel has power to overcome man's sin. Jesus proved this with his own life in ministry as he sat there talking to someone that any other Jewish rabbi worth his salt would have avoided because that's what everybody said you had to do. Jesus showed there was a far greater mission. So therefore, because Jesus had proved over and over again in his ministry that the social norms and constructs didn't constrict his message, we read the disciples didn't ask any of these questions out loud. They had begun to learn. Doubtless, these questions, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her, doubtless these things were going on in their brains, but no one dared to give voice to the questions. And we wonder, we wonder, as if, these, we wonder if, if these men, on their way into town, maybe they passed this woman, right? Maybe they even recognized this woman because they saw her going up to the well as they were going into town. And if these, you know, that would add this layer of shock, right? Well, we, we saw her earlier. Okay, now, if you think they're shocked and a little disturbed at the societal norms being broken, imagine, if you will, if they knew everything about this woman that Jesus knew about her and just revealed to her last time. They would have been beside themselves over who Jesus was talking to. But see, contrasting these insiders to Jesus' ministry, we see the experience of the woman as she heads into town, And that's a very interesting thing that, that you see sometimes develop in the life of Jesus, that those who are the, on the inside or should have known better are contrasted with those who we may, some may call on the outside as they experience Jesus and begin to see him for who he really was. Because we see the supernatural experience that this woman has had with Jesus. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. See, this woman's life has been changed this day. She met the Messiah, and she placed her trust. She believes in him. And we see this by the actions that she undertakes because of that. Having heard Jesus' revelation and experienced his supernatural insight into her life, showing her the greatest need of her heart and how he could meet that need for her, she departs to return to the city to call others. And it's really interesting, as she departs, You get this note here in verse 28 about that water pot. You notice that? It's kind of this aside thing uh, that John, one who was an eyewitness that day, took note of. And I, you know, I don't want to spiritualize a water pot, okay? But it is interesting to note the eyewitness account of a man who was there saying, hey, I remember, by the way, under the expression of the Holy Spirit, that, that she set that down as she went into the city. We're not told why she left it behind. But again, it's that firsthand knowledge of John. And as the Holy Spirit brought these things back to his mind, inspiring his writing, that water pot stuck out in his mind. 
You know, perhaps she left it for Jesus and the disciples to use because, remember, Jesus had asked for a drink. Perhaps, you know, merely she just wished to be unencumbered by that water pot as she made her way around town. But that water pot, as it sat on that well, stood as a reminder of the events that happened in that woman's life that day. She had come to the well for physical water and left with something far greater. And that change resonates in her heart as she goes throughout the town, calling on others to experience Jesus as she has. As Philip called to Nathaniel in John chapter 1, so does she call to others in the city to come and see Jesus for themselves. She has experienced life-changing knowledge, Love and power in Jesus, and so she calls to others. One author I read in preparation for this message rightly observed that this woman knew where to find the men of the city, for she had many an experience with the men of that city. One wonders if perhaps those who she called to were those to whom she had been wed in her past. In a town such as this, her life story and personal record were probably well established among the people of that city. And Jesus' impact on her life led her to proclaim to others that he had revealed his knowledge of her past and her present condition to her, no matter how sinful it was, because the Savior is greater than our sin. And this woman, formulating her invitation as a question, invites others to experience what she experienced. She says, that she, she, if they, she asks them, do you believe this could be the Christ, the Messiah? the promised one, the anointed one who was promised to come and take away man's sin. And they had all long awaited and expected the Messiah to come, and now she compels them to make their own deductions as to who Jesus is. And here's the thing, folks. Because Jesus is who he says he is, he is worthy of us inviting others to experience him. If you have come to him for salvation of your soul, transformation of your life, and your hope of eternity, then we are to proclaim him to others. We've all had somebody that we've introduced to somebody else, and we say, hey, you're really going to like this person, and they just don't live up to the hype, so to speak. And you, you say to them, hey, did you enjoy? Well, I mean, they were okay. Okay, right? But that's never the case with Jesus. He is who he says he is. So introduce him to other people. Bring people to meet the Savior. The insiders of Jesus' life, these disciples, they struggle to spread this message of the gospel, especially here in these early years. But the outsiders who experienced Jesus' love and grace, free from their own ideas of who Jesus was or who the Messiah must be, saw him for who he was. And we must understand that that's sometimes the point that the disciples and others in, in, in Israel struggled with, that they had their own ideas of who the Messiah would be, that he would come to overthrow the Roman government or do this or do that, and they failed to see who Jesus really was and what he came to do. They failed to see the message of the gospel. And when we stop trying to make Jesus who we think he should be, but instead see him for who he is revealed to be, we will see the truth of the gospel. You'll see that Jesus isn't the latest in a line of human ideals. 
You will see that he isn't a nice idea that helps some people. You will see that he isn't merely a good teacher, but instead you will see that he is man's only hope, the only lifeline from sin, the Son of God, and the blessed assurance of your life. That's who Jesus is. And if we see and experience that, then we will want to boldly proclaim it to others because the message of Jesus is effective. That is just as true today as it was in Jesus' own day. The message of Jesus Christ is still effective. On this particular day, we observe this effectiveness as those in the city began, and we read in verse 30, they went out of the city and came to him. They began to make their way to Jesus. Now, we're not told here how many came out of the city that day, but it does seem from what John is saying to be some sort of sizable group. They have heard the testimony of this woman whom they know, and now they wish to see who Jesus is for themselves. And as they approach, Jesus takes the time to instruct his disciples in his work. We see in in these verses, in verses 31 through 38, the Savior's harvest. And it begins with a, a superseding desire. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. As the woman departs, so so you kind of have an an interlude, an intercut here of the action. We've already seen the woman depart and go and tell all these people and they begin to come. And while this is going on, Jesus' disciples have this exchange The disciples return to the temporal needs that are before them. They're worried about the physical needs of their master because they were hungry, so he must be too. Jesus earlier was weary from the journey, so surely now he must be weary even more so from his discussions. So they urge him to eat. And once again, Jesus uses the physical world to illustrate the eternal truth about God's kingdom. And here, he shows his disciples the importance of the work of the kingdom of God. And while the disciples urge him to eat, Jesus replies to them that he has food to eat of which they do not know about. And yet again, here's Jesus using an illustration of this temporal world, and and, and the disciples key in on that temporal aspect. You can almost see it. They start to look around, and one of them says, I mean, who brought you something to eat? I mean, you're, you're here in, in Samaria. We're the only ones, unless somebody else came along. In their minds, it seems impossible that anyone else would have taken care of this need for Jesus. So they naturally begin to question this among themselves. And here, Jesus begins to explain this statement. He shares with them that his food is to, to do God's will and to accomplish the work to which his father had sent him. What he's saying is that more satisfying than any food Jesus could ever eat was doing the will of his Father. That Jesus, as 100% God and 100% man, had real physical needs for rest and refreshment. We read that earlier as he was wearied from the journey and sat by the well. But he was willing to postpone meeting those needs because of the importance of his work. See, Jesus was, as God the Son, was on a mission from God the Father. 
He had come to take away the sin of man. He had come to save his people from their sin and to bring them back to the Father through himself. And his conversation with the woman at the well was part of that mission. And the coming work amongst the Samaritans was part of this mission as well. It was a mission that Jesus would reiterate to his disciples and others time and again. It is a mission that we are called to as Christians as well. But, but oftentimes, as part of those excuses that we make for not sharing the gospel with others, we have other things that we need to take care of, right? And no, the spread of the gospel isn't a call to abandon every earthly duty that God has given you, but it is, it is a call to realize that the most overriding factor in your life is to serve the Lord. That some of those temporal things that you and I like to do and that you and I like to enjoy and that that you and I may even deem important or even necessary, sometimes they need to take a back seat in our lives so that we can do the work of God. That we can do the things God has called us to do. And you know what? There may be things in our life that in and of themselves aren't sinful, but in order to carry out the work of God, we have to say, you know, that's just not something I can do. That's not something that brings honor and glory to God in my life. In fact, it's something that's very distracting from me doing the work of God. And here, Jesus, who who was tired, who was thirsty, who was hungry, he begins to show his disciples that the work of God is greater than even those temporal needs he had. And he now shows his disciples that what they're about to be a part of is the greatest work that there is. Not only is there this superseding desire, but, but Jesus then begins to show them there is a superior harvest coming. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that, that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. In the agricultural world of Israel, the harvest time was a wonderful time. It meant reaping the crops that had been so carefully planted and cared for. And when Jesus gave this statement to his disciples, most likely it's in the month of December, which would have been about, in that time, about four months until the April harvest, when the grain would have been gathered in. But in contrast to the coming grain harvest, there was another harvest ready to be reaped. So Jesus called on his disciples to look unto the fields, for they are white and ready to be harvested. And that picture would have been used, obviously, when they talk about the fields being white for harvest of the, of the grain that had turned into this, this light brown or white color that they would, they would then harvest in. He, he's not speaking, of course, of the green grain that's now growing in the fields, but he's speaking of the Samaritans who are approaching him and his disciples at the well. And it's a very vivid picture because most, if not all of these people, would have worn white robes as they came out of the city. And what Jesus is saying is, is look, this very picturesque and fitting thing that Jesus is saying in this statement, here are hearts that are ready to receive the message of the Savior. Here are lives ready to be changed. Here is the greatest harvest that anyone could ever hope to be a part of. 
Harvesting grain and other crops may be rewarding. It, it may p- pay monetarily or may give physical satisfaction, but the spiritual harvest that Jesus foresaw in the Samaritan town was far more rewarding and far more satisfying because the fruit would be those in the village finding eternal life. And what Jesus says here is the reward for those who lead others to the Lord is joy that is rooted in God. Seeing others come into God's kingdom is a truly wonderful thing that we have the opportunity to be a part of. Sometimes we may be the sowers of the seed of the gospel. Sometimes, as Jesus says here, we may be reapers of its fruit because the work of God is a cooperative effort. But Jesus makes it very clear here that there is no rivalry between those who sow the seeds of the gospel and those who reap them. And if you in your life have the privilege to lead someone to the Lord when another person has planted the seed, that makes you no better than those who have invested in that soul previously. Or if you have shared the gospel with someone, making clear the message of Christ only to be turned away or discounted, you are not counted as faithless and useless to God. Jesus clearly illustrates the efforts here shared by others. Jesus says that he is about to send them into a field for which they have not sown. He said in verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Jesus and this woman that he met at the well, they're the ones who begin to sow the seeds of the gospel. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well of her need. And then the woman, in turn, when she had found the Messiah, went and told other people. The seeds of the gospel have already been sown in the hearts of these ones. The disciples will now have the opportunity to participate in this great work and see a bountiful harvest. We have to understand this, that the responsibility of drawing men to salvation and securing their eternity lies with God. He is the only one who can save men from their sin. But he makes this very clear to us who are his disciples. He expects us to participate in that work. He expects us to share with them the message of the gospel, to show them their need of salvation as he works in their hearts. God expects his own to participate in the work of sowing the seed and seeking to reap a harvest. Yet how often do we as Christians shirk this duty that God has given us. We hide behind excuses of not wanting to offend other people or, well, I don't know what to say or, well, I don't know anyone who needs the Lord. And to you, I would say this, the message of the cross is offensive. Give it in love. Do you realize that the basic premise of the gospel offends the human heart? Because in our own pride, we think we're good enough. We think we don't need anything. And when you come along and tell someone that they are a sinner, they will spend eternity in hell separated from God, and that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, that's going to ruffle some feathers. But that's okay. Because if you love someone enough, you tell them the truth. And you don't look at someone And tell them the message of the gospel and that they're lost without Jesus Christ because you hope that they burn in hell. You tell them the message of the gospel 
that they can see the hope of Jesus Christ and spend eternity with him. But as Paul said, how will they hear without a preacher? So to those who would say, I don't want to offend anyone, the message of the cross is in of itself offensive. As we read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. When we say, well, we don't know how to share the gospel, what do we say? God has provided us his word. And godly men and women to help us study and learn how to share the gospel. If you, you say, well, I don't know what I would tell someone about the gospel. Open up your Bible and give them the word of God. Open up your life and tell them what God has done for you. And if you want to go beyond that and, and learn more about how you can better articulate the gospel or, or, or share that with people, then, then this church is a resource. A place, we have ways that we can show you how you can share the gospel with other people. Ways that, that God has used, they're, they're just tools that point people to his word. And if you use the excuse, well, I don't know anyone that needs the gospel, I would just simply say, you're not trying hard enough. You and I live in a world full of people who need the gospel. Your neighbor needs the gospel. Your coworker needs the gospel. Your teammate needs the gospel. You may have people in your family who need the gospel. You don't have to go far to build a relationship with someone who needs to hear the message of salvation. And instead of waiting for someone to do something to reach people, go reach people. Right? Sometimes we sit around and say, well, I sure hope that the pastor or the church or this person or that reaches somebody, the missionary. Go reach somebody. That is your responsibility. Don't buy into this lie of of passive good living, that if I just live my life good enough, that someone will see it. Challenge the sin of this world with the truth of God's word. As what Jesus said in the end of of Matthew chapter 28, go make disciples. But I would hasten to say this, don't go and do it out of guilt. Okay, my, 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 my goal here today is not to stand up here and guilt you into going out and sharing the gospel with somebody else. Because how many of us have been guilted into doing something in life and found out it doesn't last very long, right? If you, if you get guilty about something in your life, you know, you, you, you get guilty about, you know, I, I need to eat better. You know, I, I need to watch what I'm eating. That guilt will last you a, a little bit, at least until little Debbie Christmas tree cakes come out. That's when my guilt wears off every year, okay? And then all of a sudden, well, I don't feel guilty about that, right? And, and you think like me, well, it would be a sin not to eat a little Debbie Christmas tree cake or three boxes of them, you know, in the first two weeks. I say that in jest to illustrate this point. That you and I can get very guilty about not sharing the gospel. We can sit here in, in a pew in a church service and say, yeah, that's right. I mean, he's right. I need to do it. I know it, I know it, and we, we just feel so burdened, by the, not by the, by the state of man's souls, but by the guilt that we haven't done what we're supposed to do. And like some sparkler on the 4th of July, we go out and, oh, this is great, and, and a few weeks later, a few months later, the guilt kind of wears off, right? 
Don't go and share the message of the gospel out of some guilt that, that we need to do that. Instead, let us be motivated to share the hope within us so that we can see others set aside their own self-efforts and find full satisfaction from the living water of Jesus. Your motivation to share the gospel doesn't come from some inward guilt. It comes from the change that God has brought about in your life. It comes from the time you spend with him in the word. It comes from your prayer to him, asking him to burden your heart. It comes from genuinely caring about other people. That's where the burden to share the gospel comes from. And we see here a glorious scene as those in Samaria come to Jesus for salvation from their sin, we see lastly today the Savior experienced in their lives. We see the shared testimony of these people beginning in verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Samaritans had heard the voice of the woman in that day claiming Jesus had told her everything she had ever done. And perhaps, as I said, some of those men of the city were part of that woman's story that Jesus had revealed. And now, many of these same people she had testified to, they began to believe in Jesus as well, all because She went and shared her life's transformation. Truly, there is power in the change that God brings into the lives of those who trust in him. They heard her words, and they came to see. And having now seen Jesus, we see that they seek his extended presence. They asked him to stay there with him, continuing to tell them more, and he stays for two days When you truly experience Jesus as he is, the Son of God and the Savior of your soul, you can't help but want more of him. They heard his own word of who he is and why he came. And this confirmed for them that he was indeed the Messiah, the promised hope of the nation of Israel. And and believing in him, they received true rescue from their sin, which was their greatest need and We see then the truth in verse 42 that's been internalized. Not only do they have a shared testimony, but they have internalized truth in their own hearts. The word of the Samaritan woman was important and it was necessary. God used her own testimony in his great and sovereign plan and will to bring these people out to meet Jesus. But far greater than the word of this woman was them hearing Jesus Himself, they believed in Jesus because they experienced what he said. See, here's the thing. At the end of the day, people don't need to hear us. They don't need our fancy outlines and our clever sayings. They don't need us to be self-confident or perfectly polished and have impeccable recall. Preparation is helpful, okay? And I'm not saying we shouldn't prepare to share the gospel. And I think if we want to share the gospel effectively with people, we should prepare. But we must understand that if we do not show others Jesus, there is no power. The amount of times 
that I have heard someone share the gospel and it just got so complicated and lost in the, in the outline is astounding. Show them Jesus. And the amount of times that, that I, as a, as a pastor, as a Christian, have, have just even walked up to a pulpit feeling totally not ready to preach. Not because I haven't studied. I always study. Not because I haven't studied out the Word of God, but, but just because I'm a human being and I'm very limited. And the amount of times I've stood up here and, and said what God laid on my heart, and people say, oh, that was what an incredible. It wasn't because of me. Because it's all about God. And that's what we should strive for when we share the message of the gospel with others. I would argue that you understanding and realizing your own weaknesses is the most effective thing you can take with you if you share the gospel with somebody else. If we walk in, say, yeah, I mean, I got this figured out. I'm going to get them lost. I'm going to get them saved. I'm going to get them into the kingdom. It's not about you, my friend. It's about him. This woman, think about her. She's no Hebrew scholar. She was just simply introducing people to the one who had changed her life. They recognized Jesus for who he was. Did you catch that at the end? The Savior of the world. Let us likewise introduce people to our Savior. Because the life-changing power of the gospel transforms us and compels us to share this life-altering news with others. Meeting the real Jesus and entering into a relationship with him cannot help but change you. The altering of your eternal destiny and the change that Jesus brings about in your life's outlook and purpose are inescapable. The endless questions of life are answered in a relationship with Jesus, and the incredible news of this issues forth from those who experience it. It has been observed by many people other than myself, but it's been observed over time that those who come to know Christ seem to lose their burden to proclaim it. Perhaps you in your own life can think back to a time when you had first come to know the Lord or God had done something in your life, and you just wanted to share it with other people. You just wanted to tell other people about it. Maybe you've had the opportunity as a parent to observe your child come to the Lord, and it's like that, those first, however long it is, they just want to tell people. And I suppose that over time, that begins to dwindle in your life, because we think, oh, well, I mean, that's a common human experience. That when something is new and fresh, We want to tell the world. If you think back to some of the things in your life that you've wanted to tell other people, it was when it was new and fresh, right? But when it became kind of normal about your life, it kind of lost its luster. Here's the point, folks. The gospel isn't normal. The message of salvation from sin isn't commonplace. There is nothing normal about one who came to take away sin. There is nothing normal about a man who is also God. There is nothing normal about one who lived a sinless life. There is nothing normal about him giving his life willingly so you could have eternal hope. The gospel changes everything. 
And if you hear this message today and you don't know him personally, you can know that which is not normal in your life as well. You can experience firsthand the knowledge of the Savior of the world. He knows you inside and out, and he is the only one who can fill your deepest need and save your soul from eternal damnation and hell. And if you know Jesus Christ, how well do you do at living his message? Do not let the sin that Jesus came to free you from override your call to live for him. Give yourself fully to him, holding nothing back, and let your life and words proclaim the message of the gospel. Let your words pour forth to invite others to come and see the Savior of the world. Would you do that today? Would you, right now, in this room, in your heart, think of someone in your life that you know needs the gospel? That you know God has put you in their life for that. And would you commit that to the Lord? I'm not asking you to guilt. I'm not guilting you, okay? I'm asking you to commit that person and your relationship to them, to God. And would you ask God to burden your heart? I would caution you with this. If you will genuinely do that, be prepared to see what God will do. To see how God would use that opportunity in your life. The light of of this place, of Beaverton Baptist Church, it isn't just some lighthouse that sits at 2888 Dale Road and and goes out to the the surrounding vicinity. The light of this place are the people who sit in these pews. You take that light with you. So whether you live down by the lake, or you live down in Midland, or you live up towards Harrison, or you live here in Beaverton, Gladwin, anywhere around this area, you take the light of the gospel with you. You are that light. And we have the the wonderful privilege and opportunity each and every day to show the world Jesus Christ. And invite them to a relationship with him. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for the transforming work of Jesus Christ on that cross. His resurrection from the tomb. His power to save men from sin. And Lord, I pray that in this room today, those who know you as Savior, would you burden our hearts. God, starting right here, you know that Even I, I struggle with this. Lord, would you burden us for the lost souls around us? Would you show us the fields that are white to be harvested? Lord, we live in a dark world. Our country is a dark place. Our community struggles. But you give hope. We ask that you would burden our hearts, not just for people in general, but for persons specifically that need you. And you would give us the courage and the boldness to speak into their lives. To invite them over for coffee, to to, to catch lunch with them, to chat with them at the, the job site, whatever it may be, and to find out where they stand with you. 
may we invite them to come and see who you are. Lord, I pray for those who may be joining us or, or hear this message who, who again, they, they wrestle with this. Would you show them the hope of their salvation is who we talked about today. May they settle their eternity with you. Lord, we ask today that as we go from this place, you'd watch over and protect us. Would you bring us back here tonight to worship you? In your name we pray.